Hello, my friends. I was here today speaking with Lana and Nigel about one of my very favorite topics, which is selling your business and getting the most out of the asset that we're spending a lifetime to build. In this chat, we look at some of the numbers that we need to think about while we're in the process of building, some of the pitfalls of when we do look to sell our company and some of the ways in which we can find a way to make sure that when we get to that inevitable time where we need to transition, that we get the absolute most we can out of our number one asset. Hope you enjoyed the chat. So we spend a lifetime trying to grow our businesses. We go through the rain, the hail, the sunshine, with the sleepless nights, the times where we have to find money, the time where we have to find energy, the times where we have to work eight days a week. Yes, I realize there's only seven days a week, but you get the idea. What's the bloody point? Well, the point is that we're growing an asset and we're growing an asset that if done well can create some massive wealth for you. In fact, that it'd be arguably the fastest growing asset class you can have. And what that does that mean is the value of your business is an important thing to look at. It's an important thing to know. And there's an old rule, which is before you start a business, know how you're going to exit it. And that way you're going to make decisions that makes your business exitable because you can make money with a business. And a lot of sole traders, they don't have a business. They have an income and they use the income or the money generated from their business in inverted commas to buy other asset classes, property, shares, investment, where they can basically set themselves up for retirement, right? That's pretty traditional. We've all heard about it. But for others, people build businesses as the asset class. So not only are they making money from their business and doing all those things as well, but they're also looking to get a big return for their business at a time. And for those listening here, that's probably a good thing. Um, that's the sort of assets we like to work with and they're the sort of businesses we want to work with because if you're going to do this and you're going to go through all the heartache and pain of growing a company, well, you may as well have a big payday at the end. But a payday is in the eye of the beholder. And we want to talk a little bit today, Lana and Nigel, about what is my business worth? And is it what I think it's worth? Or is it what investors think it's worth? Or is it worth anything? Or actually, I have no idea that I should be thinking like this. I want to have a conversation about that today because I think people are generally confused by business. And as one of our very close friends once said, valuing a business is an art form rather than a science and specifically referring to smaller businesses, SMEs. Yes. So, Lana, you've gone through this before with your own businesses. I've gone through this with my businesses. We continue to go through it, but where do we begin? Where do we begin? And I, I think we have to talk about the numbers to start with. Yes. Knowing your numbers. Yes. What numbers? Um, I had, it's now an infamous Alana experience, which was the first time I was looking to get my business sold and all the magical elements, I uh, sat down at the table and I was asked the question, so what's your revenue? And I said, it's about X. And this was from a, I would say, a definite friendly fire person. And he said, about? And I said, yes, about. He said, oh, that's not good. Yeah, not the revenue, the way you, un- the way <laughs> the, you articulate the it. 
<laughs> and from that day forward, not only do I know my business numbers, but I understand them because it was this realization as I think I probably was 24 at that time. So young. So young. <laughs> Um, that not only do you need to know the numbers, not about, but know to the scent when you are working with people on this level, but you also have to understand them because in the art form of investing, of selling, the numbers make up a story. They show you the truth of what's there. And of course, people will say that there's gray in numbers. For example, 2020 is going to have an asterisk on every business numbers because of COVID-19 but you have to understand what that asterisk means for your business. And so when you begin to look at selling or investing in a business, the numbers that are easy to begin with are obviously profit and loss. So revenue in, revenue out, but also the expenses. So what are those expenses are nice to have? What are those expenses are building the business up for the future? And what are those expenses are people going to look at and question and what is your answer going to be for the question around why do you have that? Yeah, and this is important with what Lana's saying is we're talking about the fundamentals here of just your P&L, Basic, your profit yeah. and loss statement. You don't get to rely on your accountant to understand your P&L, okay? You, you don't. You don't have that right. You need to be able to read it. You need to be able to regularly get it. It needs to be updated and you need to understand that if I sat with you right now, you could tell me the whole story of the business in the last quarter, month, year, 10 years, exactly what happens because that story would relate to the numbers and what happened. Even people who have been very successful can sometimes not quite understand how numbers work. So particularly with all of our clients, we we have a very frustrating part of their early engagement is they actually have to talk us through every single line item of their whole business balance sheet and profit and loss. And if any of that sounds like um, hieroglyphics for you, get on Google after this and start Googling how to read a profit and loss statement, speak to your accountant and start get some education because if you don't, it's only a matter of time before you hit a wall. Mm. And it's, yeah, that's a non-negotiable if you're an owner. Absolutely. And especially because we are talking about here is the investment of numbers and building for scale and your exit. A really simple example of the two sides of knowing and understanding. Knowing is in a digital agency, for example, you have ebbs and flows in the cycle. So a lot of agencies in Australia, they have got what they would deem a down period during December and January. That is just what happens because a lot of people in Australia take that time off. So there's not always um, people purchasing agency services at this time. So this is knowing your numbers. Yeah, and even, you know, not just seasonal businesses. This is industry seasonal, not just my ice cream shop in winter drops by 20% because I don't sell as many ice creams. That's that's just the basics. What yes. Lana's talking about is when you're really in an industry and you know where you fit in that industry, there are some natural ebbs and flows that are become very trackable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Understanding your numbers is in our digital agency, we use a lot of external systems and platforms to run our internal system. So when we look at the expense items and the reoccurring uh, expense comes up of systems, I'm able to talk through every single system 
how much it costs and why it's of value to our clients. So an example of that is um, we have a live reporting dashboard, for example, that let's just say it costs $1,000 a month. I need to be able to explain to anyone who is looking at my numbers why that line item is so important in the ongoing running of the business. Because while it might be um, an expense, it's actually a revenue generator because of how much clients rely on this piece of information. Yeah, it's part of the actual product. And this is the thing is knowing every single line item, what is just a general expense of the business? Because when people are valuing your business, they're looking also where they can find savings, where they can do things better than you were doing, where they can tap into some of their systems if they've got another business and won't need yours. Like simple things when people buy a business going, well, wait a minute, if I buy this business and I put this business into my current office, I save the whole rent from that business. So simple things where they can start making your company more valuable for them, which is what we want. We want people to buy it and do well from it and we get the exit we need. And this is the thing that Lana's getting into some detail about, which is some expenses need to be understood. But you also need to understand from your point of view then what are our real costs because if something like that drives the client experience, you know that's a cost that can't be negotiated, can't be pulled back. That is part of the client experience. But then when you pull that forward, you have to know this level of sophistication. Which numbers matter in valuing my business? Let's just start with the basic numbers and we'll get into some other elements because it's not just about numbers that make the value. Numbers is just the fundamentals and without a strong footing or without a strong understanding, it, you'll never get the value that you should get for when you're ready to sell the business. And listen, if you're someone who's sitting there going, I'm never going to sell my business, that's great. You'll leave it to your kids, you'll do something or you'll shut it down and then they'll sell it. You know, Kids will get it, they'll sell it or you'll give it away and no one will want it or just close down. So either way, you're going to have an exit some stage. You may as well just see if you can get some money for it. Now, Let's talk about the ratios and things that need to happen or the need, the things you need to focus on to make sure that you're making decisions that add value to your asset, not reduce it. Even though they might be good business decisions, you need to understand what do people buy companies like mine in my industry on? What are they looking at? What would be, because let me jump back. Who are you going to sell to? So you have to understand that. Even if you, it might be years and years away, are you a business more likely to sell to another business in your industry, a trade sale? Are you just going to put your business up for sale and someone could come in who's not been in the industry and take over and run it? Is that the type of business you've got? Are you someone that is going to be able to float that business? Is it set up potentially for an IPO one day? So you have to understand what is my business plan and what is my exit plan and then what numbers in my PL and my company need to work in order to maximize that value. So one of the ratios people might look at in an industry is your revenue per employee because that's a sign of efficiency for more sophisticated investors or it might be for that industry. But what we do have to work at is what's the true asset? So Lana touched on her systems and process. Now, for most businesses that are semi-decent, they've got great systems and processes. In Lana's business or one of her businesses, the systems and process were actually IP. They could be transported into other companies and make them better. It was actually the systems and processes were so good and so unique that they were actually sold at a stage and licensed out to other companies. 
So that's a different asset to the business too. And you have to start looking through your company and working out what are the assets I've got right now? And here's the big one. And this is one Lana we should talk about is if the asset or if you sat there and I said, what's your assets? And if you listed yourself, we have a problem. A huge problem from personal experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, look, the best advice that I can give going through this process to anyone is leave the ego at the door. If you are listed as an asset in the business, it means that you are tied to the business. If that's what you want, if you want to go along with the business as part of the exit or the sale or the scale, wonderful. If you don't want to be tied to the business, you need to start now, if not yesterday, building everything around you so that the business and its function is the asset not your ability to flick switches on and off within the business. Yeah. You cannot be the asset and expect a high value for your business unless, let me give some caveats here because there are plenty of them, unless you still plan to do a sizable amount of time in that company because buying into your company or exiting you might take many, many years, but that's part of the purchase price. People are buying you to drive it for the next few years and it's not really a exit or sale it's that's more an investment with you having a personal exit and some people love that some people are looking for almost that if i sell this to someone i can take a less business driving role and more of a hands-on role to grow my business with support Yeah, putting real structure behind you that can put your core business you know light it on fire essentially that can really give you that next boost so you can imagine a lot of the tech companies did that i mean we laugh, but Instagram was that. So yes. Instagram went to Facebook and everyone goes, you're mad. Why would you do that? And well, they were smart enough, the Instagram guys, and a lot of people have given them um, have given them a lot of shit really because they, they were saying, oh, look how much money you lost because, you know, look how successful it was and go, yeah, because you bolted it onto Facebook. You bolted, you didn't have this huge company that was coming straight at you as a competitor. You had them as an ally and you and they helped build it. Same with YouTube and Google. And because of that, Instagram was able to stop Snapchat's takeover. They had the support of Facebook where their technicians could literally strip what Snapchat did, put it onto Instagram that already had the users understanding it and fight them off. Yeah. And so you see all these stories around. Now, the Instagram guys were still there for many years afterwards. I think they've taken more of a, um, a back would step now, which is fair enough. When you've got many billions of dollars, you probably you You're know, done. You bring people and also you bring people through in new innovation and, and I'm sure they've got other things they want to do in life. But for us in particularly playing in the SME place, you have to start understanding where your asset will be most or of most value and to who. Because if you're not having that thought, you're just leaving it all up to chance. And it doesn't mean it's not chance at the end, but you do need to work out is there things or are there things we could do that would increase the value if I ever needed to or wanted to exit this? Yeah, and the, the idea is not the value. I'm just going to say that at the front. Um, quite often people think I've got a great idea. Invest yeah. in me. This doesn't happen in SMEs. It might happen in tech, but a lot of time SMEs, your idea has been taken. It's the execution. Yeah. We've just been speaking about um, you being an asset in a company is not a good thing. Just for people out there, I'm sure that a lot of our SME people listening, they've got a few key people 
within their organization, like their heads of different departments, one of it, are they an asset or a liability if it relies on that person? Are you talking about employees? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the interesting parts about an SME exit is a lot of the people buying will want to lock in key people for a period of time as part of that purchase price. And so you don't want to buy a company and next week everyone leaves. So one of the things as part of the due diligence process will be checking through all the contracts or locking people into contracts as part of the buyout period because it is very unlikely that people will buy in the SME space all cash up front type business. Generally, you pay over a few tranches which means you know different times in which you pay a portion of the the price based on performance. Um, that would be a sensible way of buying an SME because there's a lot of unknowns in smaller companies. So locking in the core people might be tying that into new contracts with the core people that will be there for 18 months, two years while the new owners get a footing that there's still that familiarity of you know for the clients or whatever it is. You want to retain that intelligence and that's part of the purchase of most companies is going through all those things. If you're buying a company and you've never done it before and you're just buying the company and you haven't even thought thought through any of that, well, you want to be getting it at a damn good price because you're basically stripping out all the assets. So as much as we're talking about where are the assets for us as owners going to sell, if you're buying, you need to know exactly what are the assets you're buying and making sure they're in place when you've purchased it. And so that negotiation is part of that sales process. So what might happen for great people you have? they might also get an incentive for staying there. They might actually, instead of just getting their wage, they've got a period of time where they might get double wage for the next two years. They might get whatever it is, but that's part of the negotiation between the um, purchaser and the seller is how does the purchaser get all the assets it wants to retain for a period of time and how to incentivize that. Now, for an example, if you were going to sell your business for $5 million, but the person buying it goes, I'm not buying this business unless you're here for the next 12 months and these five people in your management team are here for the next two years. And you sit there and say, well, how am I going to do that? How am I going to incentivize? I can get $5 million. How am I going to lock in those other five people? You might go there and say, hey, I'm going to give you all a bonus for signing a two-year contract. And then you use that contract as part of the purchase deal, which is pretty normal. So everyone's protected and everyone gets a win. For the employee, they might go, listen, to get a lump sum and stay for a few years, that's wonderful. I wasn't planning on leaving anyway. I like my job. But what they'll need to then feel comfortable with is the new owners. And so you have those interviews, you have those meetings, you have the all that because that's part of a purchase where SMEs get it wrong is people just go and buy it and then realize they haven't bought anything. They've bought a, a name, a registered name at a website. And so this is why um, M&A, mergers and acquisitions and purchasing of businesses is a really sophisticated thing. It's why they get paid the big bucks. It's why the lawyers on there because you've got to go through. Imagine we're talking about SMEs. Like it's simple. When you're getting to multi-million dollar businesses with so many things in place, this is a really difficult part of you know business. You've touched on a really good point that I personally love, yep. which is buying something that's not particularly tangible, but you know it's in what you're doing. And I do know this is, you, you enjoy software sides of things. Yep. Um, talk us through Facebook and WhatsApp. Well, I mean, if we go to the sort of big end of town and I'll speak this on a basic level, why did Facebook buy WhatsApp? 
Now, A, it was just a good investment because it was a growing platform. So let's just put that to the side. Was that really where they saw the value and why they paid $16 billion for it? Um, give or take a couple of billion because you know, with, with the buyout and all that. But what was also happening was what, one of their key things and Facebook looked at it and this is how we need to look at it in our own businesses is where is there an intangible value that someone else will want to pay a premium for? So Facebook at that time ha- were having trouble getting into China obviously with the, just the different laws but also they weren't allowing um, you know, media and Facebook being a media entity through China. But WhatsApp had quite a prevalent, um, I guess, a prevalent um, uh, footprint in China. And so if Facebook owned WhatsApp, they know that as the world evolves or as, as China opens up or whatever it needs to be, they've now got a footprint there that can be leveraged at some time. If not, they're still in the country with a provider. So they had some workarounds for WhatsApp to be able to be accessed there that Facebook didn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know they were already there. They had a footprint. It might take Facebook a decade to get that type of you know traction in China. Yet they could purchase WhatsApp, and they've got all the learnings from that. They've got the footprint. They've got the current users. They've got all the things that come with WhatsApp, which was they had really great encryption. They had really great other technologies. So it was a good acquisition that at a premium had more than just the revenues because it wasn't actually a revenue generating thing. They started off a dollar to sign up of WhatsApp, but the real value is not was not the revenue generation. It was what it allowed Facebook to bolt on to its company, which has obviously been a major success over the last few years. But for us in SMEs, that's still the principle's still right. It's who would love to maybe get access to my client base. So someone might buy you and they might value more your client base or getting access to that client base than actually your company and what you do, which is can sometimes be a real punch to the ego when people evaluate, you know, giving you a valuation on your business. But these are the things that those relationships have a value if they've got a value. If the relationship sits with you, that's a problem mm. because then if you leave, well, does that mean all the relationships you built over 20 years are gone? It's tough. How do you, how, who wants to buy that? <laughs> um, another really uh, interesting part about the WhatsApp sale to Facebook was this idea that Facebook, WhatsApp hadn't had a lot of users in America. So it wasn't particularly popular to the eyes of people watching. Yeah, in relative terms to the rest of the world's uptake. Mm. Yeah. But it's almost that they had this anti-competition opportunity that they knew was was coming, that Facebook couldn't push themselves. So um, things around encryption, the fact that people around the world were using it for communication in a way that Facebook couldn't get people to jump on Messenger, they actually saw this opportunity that while I'm sure Facebook could have squashed them, they saw it as a value add to their business to stop the cannibalisation. Yeah, I mean they're just – no, it's it was a great acquisition for them. Mm. I mean, they've just one of the things about, you know, not that we really have any right to comment on Facebook, but they're just, I mean, they love them. They're just geniuses. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're, they're absolute geniuses. Their acquisitions have been very, very smart. They're you know they're in that sort of Google s smartness. Even though Google basically buy everything, but it's just really smart acquisitions to expand what they're doing. They know their business obviously really well, which is. We have no place commentating on that because that's why they're them and we are us. But yeah, let's talk a little bit. They do have a 
sorry, they've got a number of advantages which uh, a lot of our SME businesses probably don't. So they've got a bunch of analysts sitting there telling them exactly how much every part of their business is worth and what the multiplier of those things are worth. Yeah, and also I, as a <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was going to say, and also they you got to remember they're running on a different um, value equation. So the value equation for them is they're building a stock price and they're putting assets in place to, it's not about profit and loss, that's one part of it, but it's valued on a number of factors and it's also valued by their stakeholders on which are their shareholders, which is what are they actively doing to continue to expand their reach regardless if it's the core business. So there's, you know, obviously as Nigel said, they're not just people in Facebook telling them this is what it's worth. Analysts, the whole environment, the stock market, everyone's watching their moves because they need their business model has to show what they're doing to continue to expand or why would they be a stock going up in value? Which, back to your first point, is Zuckerberg built Facebook knowing what his end goal was. It well, I'm not sure if he could have – I'll give him a lot of credit, but I don't, credit. I don't know if he quite knew uh, – <laughs> he, he didn't want to sell it. He wanted to build it up to an IPO and that would mean that he was responsible for the share price. Absolutely. No, yeah. Absolutely. And I th- I th- you guys have sort of highlighted what's a, maybe a bit of an issue around this at the moment because you're in this field. Words like IPO, float, multipliers, all these kind of things, they're second nature to you. But as an SME listening into this, those are big words that may seem outside of my scope well, and they're almost... Yeah, let's let's sorry, let's break a couple of them down because I think um, for anyone who needs to that, go list the top 10 investment terms and go through them because it's important to understand how different businesses are valued and analysed. But multiplier is one that even in SMEs is something to probably be aware of. And the multiplier basically means that every industry has a sort of multiplier in which people use as the standard to value businesses at the start. So when they get a company, they go, what has been the average multiplier this type of company has sold for? And different industries, depending on what they are, basically have a multiplier that's common it doesn't mean that there aren't businesses that develop something special in there that get a different multiplier. So I want to give you an example. Um, locally, a company sold uh, in Australia, a, a digital company, and they were bought on, I think it was a 10 multiplier, which was at the time we were doing two to three multipliers. I won't give the name because I want to make sure I'm not sure if this is <laughs> public knowledge, but the reason it was sold on a 10 multiplier, three to four times more than most of agencies of a mid-size is because they were locking in the creative people for a decade. And that had a multiplier in it, which was an intangible that only that business could get, but it was locked into that sale price. Yeah, I'm going to ask this question on the behalf of the person I know that is sitting in their car screaming at the windshield at the moment. Multiplier of what? So it's dependent on the industry and there are a few ways of doing it. It can be a multiplier of revenues. It can be a multiplier of net profits. It could be a multiplier of an industry-specific mechanism. So that's the, that's the reason this is an art form rather than a science. Some people purchase on different multipliers, but commonly people look at it as their net profit, commonly. Because 
there's no point having great revenues and losing tens of millions of dollars a year in an SME space because most people aren't going to buy that out. They'll wait till you go broke and then just buy, <laughs> go and get your customers. So it's a little <laughs> different. Whereas in other industries, people in bigger businesses and bigger companies, people won't, may not be as worried about that loss because there might be a, a more competitive environment where they'll buy a company who's in loss maker in order to get access to that a market, a, a, a type of client or a, a new, you know, technology, whatever it is. And yeah. The, the, so you're looking at Netflix yeah. in that example. Yeah. And just the example that Tim was talking about, revenue or net profit, if, if that's your basic multiplier that you're going to play with to figure out what your business is, is going to sell for, the multiplier of your revenue might be three. The multiplier of your profit might be six. So not all multipliers are also created equal because obviously, hopefully, you've got more revenue than you have profit. <laughs> yeah, and to, to be honest, even though we're saying it's an art form rather than a science, when you get to a point where you're selling or valuing your business, there are people who can do this. The only issue is that commonly a lot of people go to their local accountant and ask them to value a business and they're doing the um, paint-by-numbers valuation process, which isn't necessarily where your optimum value will come from. And that's what you have to understand is, okay, what do I need to look at? And maybe we'll go through some basics now because I think for those people thinking, why don't we just keep this really top line and basic? The first thing is revenue does matter because you've got to be able to make money somewhere and you've got to be able to show that your business can generate revenue just for all those tech people who are listening out there yes i understand it's different when you're in tech investment and there might not be revenue until it's bolted onto the acquisition or there's a separate i get it but as a general sme you need to be able to show your revenue and your consistency of revenue so it's funny a lot of people it's really funny a lot of people think they'll have one good year and then put their business up for sale Anyone who's got half a brain doesn't buy on one year of revenue. They look at your past three and look at your average revenue. So if you're someone who's tried to pump up revenue or push all your contracts into the one year, people aren't stupid. Actually, it's, it's, that's a wrong thing to say. There are people that will be unsophisticated. You can always trick a fool. But anyone who's looking at a business's evaluation is not going to just take one year of revenue. So if you have 10 years of loss leading and one year because you happen to get one big contract or something like that, it doesn't mean your business is suddenly worth a multiplier of that because you've had one good year. And this comes back to understanding your numbers. You have to tell the story of your numbers and that's where in um, the due diligence process, which Tim yep. will talk about, you need to be able to explain why. Yeah, so you could, you could imagine that if you've had one big contract because you got lucky or something came off or whatever it is or your friend's cousin gave you a contract in your business and it looks really good, that might not be as valuable as showing that, well, over the last few years, we've been investing heavily in infrastructure. And now that we've been able to get that infrastructure up and running, the business is highly profitable because our cost per unit's gone down 90%. Things like that that can be very, once you tell the story, people say, wow, so you're ready to really go. Yeah, we need to sell them at the moment because we don't want to do this anymore or there's a reason or that, you know, whatever it is. But the business makes sense for why it's making money now as opposed to I just got one good contract, you know what I mean, or one good web campaign, whatever it is. Um, the other thing that you need to work out is net profit also makes a difference but a lot of people in the SME space understand that most net profits are reinvested into the business for growth. So 
when you are putting the numbers together, what you can actually do is put numbers together that here's the P&L because a lot of people are optimizing their tax and the way that they're distributing money and profits and all that but actually taking out some of the operational investments which are one-off investments potentially, things that won't be there every year. So actually when you put together a valuation of a business, there's a lot of costs that come out or a lot of costs that go in. For instance, a lot of people um, don't pay their wages, the owners, out of the business as a salaried employee. They might take a dividend or do it in a whole lot of different ways that maximizes their taxation. Now, when you're going to sell to someone else, if you're someone who's been taking a dividend instead of a salary, well, who's going to replace your wage in there? So, a salary of market equivalent for you has to be added into the business. And it should sort of null itself out, but a lot of SME people have been paying themselves less than what they would get as a market rate. So imagine you're a CEO of a $3 million company. Now, what would it cost me to replace you? And that's the number that has to go in. So actually the numbers of your business are a starting point for then both the buyer and seller to get the real value of that business. It's different in the big end of town because and numbers are pretty much set. You know, that's a proper P&L. Everyone gets paid normally. It's a corporate structure that there's no flexibility around that. But when you're in private businesses, a lot of these things have to be be looked at. Yep. Um, maybe give them some more examples as well, as Nigel was saying, so that people understand all the words that we're talking about. So things like due diligence, what does that mean to an SME? So the due diligence is the process of basically, think about it like this, finding out everything that should be in that business or that people are trying to hide. So a due diligence process is when people come to buy your company, if they've got, if they've done this process before, they'll not only talk to you, see the numbers, they'll probably get a forensic accountant to look through everything over the last few years. They'll call clients and make sure that what you're saying is right. They'll call clients to see if you're someone who they enjoy working with. They'll find out why they like working with you. They'll learn, They'll talk to everyone. They'll talk to employees. So it's not just due diligence of numbers. It's due diligence of your clients, of suppliers, of um, every single thing you can think of. People can insist upon that. So you've got to realize this is the reason you've got to run a tight ship with your company and look at it as an asset is because when it comes time to sell, people are going to be looking in every nook and cranny just to find out whether what you're saying is true. I had a really great due diligence story of a big investor in America and it was once all due diligence was done and the numbers were all clear, he would take the founders to a different city. So if they were in New York, they'd go to LA, just somewhere that was big and exciting for a business meeting and his due diligence was to see how they behaved. If they went out that night before the meeting that was a key element of his due diligence, as Tim said. Yep. Does the story match? And if they went out, he knew that the story wouldn't match because on this opportunity that he'd given them to pitch and be involved in this situation, yep. they chose to go against everything that they'd been saying about being committed and hard workers. And so this is why due diligence is very interesting and also in investment why they say you invest in people, not just the business. Due diligence means are you strong of your word. Absolutely. And then with the due diligence, if you get through that, people want to know that the bits that they're buying are in place. So they might look at a business that doesn't have contracts in place with 
clients is less valuable than those that do because it's essentially securing the revenue amounts. It might be looking at supplier agreements. Are you dealing with tier one suppliers, tier two suppliers? Have you got a whole lot of mum and dad in you know, little suppliers that basically might not be there tomorrow? And if one of those suppliers gives you your best-selling product and that disappears tomorrow, you're a high risk. So it's all these little things that come out in the due diligence that basically answer this one question. Is this real? And is this real while you're here? And will this be real for me tomorrow when you're not? And if the answer is I'm unsure, down goes your value Mm. or the opportunity to even sell it all. And that's also a really good segue into probably maybe the final outline of a tranche payment. So protecting everyone in the decision-making process from making a mistake. Yeah, and this is the exciting bit for a business owner. If you're going to sell, um, you can also negotiate success payments, which is, well, if all things stay even and, and we buy it on these terms and the numbers and everything that all the little terms that come into the purchase happen and it goes along the way we did in the next 6, 12, 18 months, then you get the price that we negotiated. But some people can negotiate also in that, that if they're more successful or they can grow the business in that percentage that they get more than the agreed upon price. So there's a whole lot of different entrepreneurial ways to structure a sale that works for everyone. Because someone might say, I want to sell my business, but I feel like we're at the, the precipice of something really great. And the owner goes, well, I still want to be involved. Let's come to an agreement that both of us win if both of us win. Great. That might work for everyone because then you can leverage each other to get there faster with less risk. Also, those relationships can easily go backwards if you don't do it right, just for the right, just for the record. The next thing is payments. Most people sell their business, think they're about to get a big check up front. That's not how it works. There's a thing called tranche payments is when you get your payments and in what period of time and on what conditions. And they can be infinite number of ways of doing that. But most likely you'll get a portion up front and then a portion based on success criteria over a period of time depending on the risk variables, depending on the person buying your business and depending on a whole lot of you know ways people in which they do business. Some family offices, for instance, only do purchases in one way and if it's not that way, they don't do it regardless of whether they think it's a good deal. So understand that if you're planning to sell your business, you might not have all the value of the business up front and what you have to work out is when I don't have the value of my business or what someone's agreed to buy it for, what is the risk between it not being a good business because someone else owns it, them running it into the ground and then saying, well, it didn't do what we said in the next 12 months so you're not getting the, the part of the value. Some people that I would say are of low moral fiber have been known to purchase businesses and happy to run them into the ground during tranche periods and pay less for them and then rebuild them back up. Wow. And I'm not saying this is a common thing but I've heard some horror stories around they didn't really value that part of it so it didn't matter whether the business was successful and if it didn't go so well, they would pay less anyway so who cares. So you've got to also be careful of the person buying their agenda. You've got to make sure you're protected that, you know, this is why it's complicated to buy companies but getting back to the core point, that's how you have to know the real value of your asset because there are so many ways in which others will value it and how you will 
and you have to make sure you're protected not only to get a good sales price but when you're in that negotiation you know exactly how your business will perform if you're not directly building it and that's the key to this when we're starting out is first understanding the process and then working out what we need to do to adjust our business to make sure that the value is optimized when you get an offer to be bought out. I've learned quite a bit today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I may be listening to this one in the car later. <laughs> but, but it's just a, it's an important one because just remember, we'll get just really briefly back to the start. You're building an asset where you're, it's blood, sweat and tears. 99% of business owners in the SME space are just building a business so they can make a wage. They don't think about the exit at all. But if you think about the exit, you might try years before to bring in a general manager, bring in an external CEO, bring in people that replace you so the business can run itself at a, a time. Because if you can get that humming along, when you get to the stage where you want to sell, you become very desirable because it's already running itself without your impact. And the golden rule is, we say if we can't take a month off without calling the business, it's not ready for sale. Well, sorry, it's not ready for an optimized sale. So <laughs> that's where you want to just start thinking about if you took a month off now and had your phone and laptop off, what would be the bits that would fall down? And if you start fixing those things, you're building an asset that has will have a really great sale value at the end. Nigel, Lana, always good to chat about this because it's very, very important. But um, let's do it all again tomorrow. See ya. Bye. Bye.